The following episode has been recorded in front of a live studio audience, which included two cats, five Barbie dolls, one miniature schnauzer, and eight tiny reindeer. I'm Groot. Uh-huh. I'm Groot. No! That's a really bad sign. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Joel Mahalik Show featuring the lovely Sharon. Happy Easter to you. It is Easter weekend, and we're taking a break to spend time virtually with the family, and we'll tell you more about that next time. But this week on the program, we're bringing back an uh, an oldie but a goodie. We're talking to former FBI agent Jack Owens. Uh, the interview was from 10 years ago on the Behind the Mic Show, and uh, we are talking about the very insightful and funny book that Jack wrote, Don't Shoot, We're Republicans. And it's about his time in the FBI and some great stories. So sit back, relax. Uh, in the show notes, there will be some more information on how you can get this and more of Jack's books. And um, we hope that you enjoy this weekend with your families. And uh, again, we'll tell you about our virtual get-together next week on the podcast. So here we go. Happy Easter. Good evening, Jack. How are you? Hello, Joe. Uh, good to talk to you. It's very good to talk to you again. I hope your week has been uh, as nice as ours has been up here. Yes, we've had good weather here. I gather you have, too, in uh, Delaware. Yes, yes. Of course, we have four days of rain coming, but I guess that's better than four days of snow. <laughs> yes, uh, we have snow You mean here, you'd rather have more snow, down. Joe? No, I did not say that. You're twisting my words. <laughs> <laughs> So, now, why would I do something like that? I have no idea. No idea. Because so, <laughs> so, Don's the pretzel king, that's why. <laughs> so, Jack, you gave, uh, was it 30 years? Yes. 30 years in the yes, FBI. I had, uh, I had three decades as an agent in the FBI. And from your memoirs, Don't Shoot We're Republicans, it sounded like the, it, it was there was a lot of fun involved. But the, the, the neat thing about it is you made the job fun for you, and, of course, you met some really good people along the way. Yes, and I, I, I did. I, I was an agent from 1969 to 1999, and what I discovered that was so delightful, really, was uh, under the stress and pressure of law enforcement situations, humor becomes even more pronounced and poignant. And it was a lot of humor with uh, the episodes I was involved in. And my colleagues and I enjoyed all these funny stories that, that really never get into books about the FBI or about police, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's always on the up and up and the straight away. And, you know, of yeah. course, quite honestly, and I, I think I started telling you a little bit about, about this, is uh, from the time your publisher 
emailed me, sent me the book. I was totally misled until I started reading page one. <laughs> <laughs> totally misled. Yeah. I, I honestly thought that I, you know, because he didn't mention much about it. He gave me the book title, the author's name, and of course, like yeah. I said, you came highly recommended. It was a great interview. So I'm taking, I don't know anything about the name of the author. So I'm taking the title of the book and going, wow, this should be a great book. Uh, you know, Republicans trying to salvage themselves. <laughs> so I was, I was pleasantly, I should say, pleasantly misled by this book. Yes. yes. <laughs> I, uh, I have talked to, to booksellers and uh, people in bookstores around the country. They initially, Joel, they want to put the book into some kind of political category. And I, I have to tell them that the book was written to be a breezy, laid-back, funny account of many of the things that happened to me. And the, the title is an indication uh, of, of what can be very funny at an FBI roadblock oh, absolutely. in rural East Alabama. But let's, all right, well, let's start at the beginning. First of all, I know because I, I, I read the book, but you did a lot of things in the FBI. So let's talk about some of the jobs you had because you tried to get your fingers into almost anything you could. You were, I mean, you're like, it just seemed to me over the course of your career, you were kind of like a little kid in the candy store. You wanted to do everything. Yes. Yes, I, I, I did. I came into the FBI after three years of law school at the University of Alabama, and I was tired of sitting in the classroom. I was ready to hit the street, and I did. And I, I found the variety of work in an FBI field office to be delightful, to be staggering. Every day, Joe, we did something different, and initially I worked fugitive, bank robbers, extortions, and uh, kidnappings, the usual fare for an FBI agent. And I arrested a lot of people, I honed my surveillance skills, and uh, I worked on my interviewing skills, which, uh, which is what agents do. We, we do a lot of interviewing. But I, I found out right away that uh, there's a lot of humor in law enforcement, and particularly, Joe, with the, with the title of the book, um, I was on the SWAT team. That's one of the things that I did for 15 years in the FBI. I was on uh, the state of Alabama's first FBI SWAT team back in 1974. And one night in the early 80s in, in rural East Alabama, not too far from the Talladega NASCAR Speedway, Speed Track, the big oval. We were set up in a roadblock. It was very dark, very rural, very isolated. And we had a bad guy drive down the highway right toward us. We could see his headlights. We pulled across the, the road and ran our blue lights. It looked like a special sale at Kmart. There were so many blue lights going. <laughs> and the guy drove right into our roadblock. We ran to his car, put shotguns on him, got him out of the car, and handcuffed him. But I'll tell you, Joe, right behind his car, we were puzzled by another car being there, real close. So we rushed that car, threw open the doors, put shotguns on the people in the front seat, and there were two well-dressed elderly ladies who threw their hands up in the air and shouted, don't shoot, we're Republicans. <laughs> and we, we, we all started laughing, and poor dears, we scared them to death. And they had just been to a political function honoring President Reagan, and they, they had politics on their minds. 
and uh, wow. we, we we said they were they were free to go. They were happy to drive away from there. <laughs> oh man! And hopefully, you didn't hear anything from President Reagan or his staff after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, wow. no, we didn't. And you know, you can't make this stuff up. It the, the kinds of things that I was involved in. Uh, I worked counterintelligence. I worked undercover against the KGB for for years. I, I was in on fugitive arrest. I was involved in two, putting down two prison riots and working on a serial killer case over in Atlanta. I mean, this kind of variety, I mean, you can't practice law and have fun like this, Joe. <laughs> right. Now, I have a, I have a question. Um, everywhere throughout the entire book, and I'm wondering if this was a, a, a simple repetitive piece of humor or what the reason for this was, but every time you talked about arresting a, a felon or a bad guy, uh, yeah. you uh, you mentioned handcuffing them the yeah. Bureau way. Now, every time yeah. you mentioned handcuffing somebody, you always ended it with comma the Bureau way. <laughs> yes, you, you, you did read the book for details. I, I applaud you, Joel. I but the Bureau way is to handcuff someone you've arrested, hands behind his back, palms out. Mm -hmm. Handcuff in that way, as opposed to handcuffing him in the front with his hands and arms in front of his body. I mean, a guy who's handcuffed in the front of his body can just beat the stew out of you, you know, and you, you just don't want to do that. So we would uh, handcuff people with their arms behind their backs and then we would put them in the back of an FBI car and they'd have to lean back on their arms and mm -hmm. that was kind of uncomfortable but that's that's the way we operated and so we wouldn't get agents assaulted you know, mm -hmm. you know Joel in the history of the FBI we've only lost 43 agents in the line of duty and and that's since uh, 1908 you know, it's, uh, it's an amazing record yeah that is and an amazing I'm record. proud of it Amazing Especially, way. I mean, you know, with those 59 offices across the United States, yeah. and I don't, who knows how many people, you know, employed on average in those offices. So that's a tremendous, applaudable record for a law it, enforcement it agency. I appreciate you saying that, Joe. I, I attribute that fine record of safety to the FBI's extensive training. I mean, we train a lot. We fire a lot at firearms ranges. They teach you how to fire a gun and how to do it properly and how to defend yourself. But the rule that really helps street agents uh, is that you cannot make an arrest of, alone. You should take help with you at all times, unless you can't help it, unless you run right into a guy, which I did once. I opened up a door to talk to the mother of a fugitive, and the, the, the fugitive opened the door. And uh, I was <laughs> oh, standing there by myself. And uh, I, I decided not to say this, Joe. I decided not to, to ask him to wait while I got help. I reached up and grabbed him by the shirt collar, told him he was under arrest, spun him around, and I handcuffed him the Bureau way. Uh, I'll, I'll reference the Volkswagen arrest. <laughs> yes. Do you care to elaborate? Um, yes. I, I, I once arrested someone by myself in my my little personally owned Volkswagen 1964 Beetle, a bug. And so the reason I did it by myself was we had used FBI cars 
several times to try to wrest a fugitive up in the mountain, heavily wooded area east of Birmingham near the town of Leeds, Alabama. And every time, every time we rolled into that hollow with a caravan of black cars and, and, and unmarked cars, the dogs would start barking, the family alarm would raise, and the guy would jump into the woods and disappear. So in frustration, not catching this guy, it was my case. I decided one Saturday morning when my colleagues were home with their families, one Saturday morning at daybreak, I got in my trusty little VW Bug, and I drove it into the hollows of Leeds, and it was still dark when I started, and I realized I had a headlight off. The right headlight wasn't working. So I drove up this hollow, and the, the dogs, the dogs didn't bark. I drove right up to the front of the house, the fugitive's house, and got out of the car. I walked up to the screen door, and it was a hot summer day, uh, night rather, early morning. I looked in the screen door, and the fugitive was asleep on the floor with a couple of women flanking him. So I went into the house, I knelt down, and I whispered in his ear, you're under arrest. And he, he looked up and he said, how come the dogs didn't bark? And I, I said, well, what about that great smell coming out of the kitchen, those collard greens? He said, yeah, that's, that's my specialty. I, I make collard greens. And I said, well, can I have some? They, they just smell delicious. He said, sure, come on in the kitchen. So I, I said to him, let's call a halt to the arrest, kind of a timeout. And so he, he said, okay. We sat there at the table. We ate collard greens, drank delicious ice-cold milk. And when we finished, I said, well, we got to resume the arrest. And I took him out and put him in the Volkswagen. He, he asked me not to handcuff him in front of his family, who had gotten up by now. I said, Okay. So I'm breaking FBI rules right and left. And I put him in my little Volkswagen, and I drive him away. I get him out of the car, and I handcuff him the bureau away with the hands behind his back. <laughs> I, I put him back in the car, and he's mumbling. He's still mumbling about why the dogs didn't bark. And uh, on the way in to take him to the Jefferson County Jail in Birmingham, he looked over at me, Joel, and he said, you know, I could really lean forward here in the car, and I'll bet you I could open this door and roll out of here. And I was going about 45 and 50 at the time, and I said, go ahead. <laughs> I, don't think he wanted, I, don't, I don't think he wanted to do that at 50 miles an hour. So we both kind of laughed. We talked about the fact he was a good cook and how I loved the collard greens. And I asked him, he was a, a deserter from the Army. I said, why did, why did you uh, leave the Army, run away? He said, I couldn't stand the food. I said, well, oh, I understand. <laughs> so <laughs> I drove him into the Jefferson County Jail, and the, the guards were startled to see me pull up in the 1964 Volkswagen Bug with a sunroof. And, uh, and on, a, on, a, on a weekend, right? Yeah, it was on a Saturday morning. When agents normally are home with their families, unless something happens. But I took him upstairs, and before I handed him over to, uh, to go back to the Army, he said to me, the FBI doesn't play fair. Coming up there in that little tiny car with, no, with one headlight out. <laughs> and I, I decided not to, Joel, I decided not to tell headquarters all that I had done that day, how I had arrested this fugitive. I, I sent a teletype omitting more that I included. I, 
I simply told the guys at headquarters that I had arrested a fugitive, and that was it. I didn't tell them anything else. <laughs> but, you know, you, you cannot have that kind of fun in any other profession, you know. I, it's, I, I just I find it admirable that that you found it to be so, you know so enjoy, so much enjoyment. Uh, believe I, me, I mean I I, did. I'm, I thoroughly enjoyed I, it. I had a friend who was with uh, the, the Treasury Secret Service. Yes, and yes. he was like a walking heart attack. You know, well, it's very stressful. Was he on the protection detail at the White House? No, he was uh, counterfeiting Treasury. Oh yeah, that's. That's a tough. That's a very tough and stressful job. Either working counterfeiting out in the field, or what's really tough, Joel, is to protect our president. Mm-hmm. And that's very stressful. And you have to be in good physical condition and a really fine shot with a firearm right. to do that. I admire those guys. I have worked with them. I have helped. This, I helped the Secret Service during my career protect uh, Nixon twice. Once in uh, President Nixon, once in Denver, and once in uh, Birmingham. But we we weren't trained for protection duty, and we simply supplemented what the Secret Service was doing when President Nixon made those two visits. I admire hmm. those guys. Yeah, they're well, they're all hard workers, including you know FBI. Like I said, I mean you know the FBI does so much for national law enforcement. Now, you started your career in the in what's always been known as the Hoover FBI. Yes, I did. And, you uh, know, we all hear stories. I mean, what was that like, really? I mean, I know it was a lot more strict, and I'm sure that yeah. um, Hoover would be rolling in his grave if he, if, he, uh, if he read this book now with all the, <laughs> you know, the things you admitted from reports. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know he would. He was uh, a strict very strict disciplinarian he had complete authority to hire and fire people and ironically joe the the summer that i was hired the bureau brought in 1000 new agents so hoover stopped doing that summer what he had done for decades that is shake hands with every new agent in new agents training class and that could be a perilous walk by with the director if for some reason when he was shaking your hands, shaking hands, if he didn't like the way you looked, he, you'd be fired. You know? But my class did not shake his hand. However, he did see us, and at times he didn't like what he saw. Uh, i give you an example. He saw my class in the hallway one day. Between sessions, we were out on break, and we were leaning, kind of leaning against the wall, relaxing in the hallway. And uh, he sent word to our class that we were not, we weren't showing enough enough discipline on breaks. You know. <laughs> well, I, I decided that thereafter, if I if I took a break out in the hall and and was drinking a Coca Cola or something, I'd stand ram, ramrod straight against the wall. You know, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Jack, when I read that part in the book, uh, I, I, yeah. I wondered to myself if that. If that really happened, or if your instructors uh, told you that to get a little more control over you, you know, Joe, you raise a good point. We had those suspicions, but we decided, Joe, in, in the interest of playing it safe, we decided <laughs> to take the the counselors at their word <laughs> that he had indeed seen us. You know. And now, in fact, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. You finish. You finish. Uh, the, the other time that, that Director Hoover 
saw us and didn't like what he was seeing, my my roommate and I and uh, and many of the other agents in my training class, we began to brown bag, bring our our lunches to class every day at FBI headquarters, and then eat in the courtyard of the Department of Justice. Well, Director Hoover saw us carrying our little bags in the building one day, and uh, he didn't like that. And the word came down again, Joe, from the counselors that that agents did not brown bag, that we'd better go out in restaurants and eat like businessmen and professionals. So when the, when the counselors said this, I had my little lunch under my desk. I took my foot and I scooted my little bag over underneath the desk of the agent sitting, <laughs> sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> he realized what I was doing. He threatened to choke me <laughs> after class. But you know, it, it just this kind of stuff is it just tickles me to death. And it, well, it's such a serious thing, federal law enforcement. So you have to laugh when this stuff happens. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I one of the things I learned as as I read through the book, uh, especially coming into you know your latter years. You know, uh, a lot of like the very, I'm going to say eccentric things and ways that that you described the way uh, Director Hoover ran the FBI. Although yeah. some of the things seemed uh, strict, eccentric, however you want to put it, it yeah. I did get the feeling that through the other directors that you worked with and all the different things that happened and the changes that were being made, that Hoover's yeah. way, in the you know, it was probably a better way overall. On average, yeah. Yeah. and if somebody was to, were to disagree with that, I would say, well, then he made a solid foundation. Yeah, because it, it just seemed uh, like he, you know, he had his finger on the pulse of the entire agency. He, he did, Joe. You you put it very well. I, I attribute Hoover's discipline over the entire FBI, his thumb right on the bureau, all of the field offices. I attribute that. A discipline to helping us be as professional as we could be at all times. And we knew, as a Coach Paul Bear Bryant used to say to his football players at Alabama, be good or be gone. And mm. we, had to be, we had to be on the tips of our toes uh, when we went out and met the public. And I applaud that. Uh, we, were, we were taught by Hoover and subsequent directors to be courteous and professional when we were dealing with the public and to treat everybody with respect. And we, the training I received was first rate. I continue to get that training. I attribute that to Hoover. Hoover also brought the Library of Congress filing system where he had once worked. He brought that system in 1924 into the FBI when he became a director. And it, you can go into any of the FBI's 57 field offices as an agent, and you'll be right at home. One office... Mm -hmm. Is, is run just like any any other office. There are no changes in the in the way things are done in all the field offices, and that's a big help. That uniformity is very helpful. Wow! Well, yeah, I, I'm, I, I can imagine because you know, I mean, today, I mean, go into a uh, a fast food chain, go into two stores from the same chain, and things will never be the same. You know, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. You're right. Well, and for a customer or for someone who maybe works, okay. 
So for a lot of years, I worked in retail. So I've worked at different franchise operators. And yeah, it's frustrating even as an employee, as a manager to go from one franchise to another and find out things just aren't being done the same way. It's, it's like certain things you have to really, yeah, you always make the Whopper the same way. But getting to that point, yeah. you know, everyone's got a different way. So yeah. I can appreciate, you know, the fact that, you know, you were able to go from office to office, you know, and do that. Now, with your yeah, training, which, uh, you know, you, you have a very high regard for the FBI's training. I and did. how often, we, did you have to pass uh, shoot-in trials? Yes. We, how we how often was that, that done? It was done at least semi-annually. Wow. And frequently, it was done uh, quarterly where we would go to the range and have to qualify Every time we went to the range, you had to meet you had to meet a certain standard if you were a special agent, and that started at Quantico, Joel, at the FBI Academy. When I came in the FBI, I had never fired a gun. My dad was a football coach and taught uh, in high school and college, and my mother taught English, and we didn't have any guns in the house. We didn't hunt. Or fish. I grew up with talk of Shakespeare and first downs at the dinner table, and <laughs> I, I I took that into the FBI academy, not knowing how to fire a weapon. And um, my first day on the range, the instructor, bless his heart, he's a great guy. He held up a thirty-eight caliber Smith and Wesson revolver, the gun the FBI was using then, and he said to our class, "Gentlemen, this is a gun." And I said to myself, you know, if he doesn't go any faster, I think I can follow him on this. But <laughs> they actually taught me how to fire. And I I became an excellent marksman uh, simply because of the repetition and the training and the expertise of our firearms guys. And all agents, all agents are good shots. Even mm -hmm. though, Joe, we rarely use our guns, there's not that much gunplay in the FBI. Well, that brought up another question I had, um, yeah. uh, and it's funny because it's uh, the same question I was about to ask you comes over uh, a chat window. Yeah. How often have you fired your handgun in your 30 years? In, uh, in the line of duty, I never fired my weapon once, and that's with 15 years on the SWAT team, making several hundred arrests, being in dangerous situations and helping to put down two prison riots, one of which we blew doors down and stormed the prison. And the reason that I never used my gun is I had so much help with me. I would take five or ten agents to arrest one guy, and when we blew the doors down in that prison riot, we brought guns to a knife fight, and we just <laughs> overpowered those guys and rescued nine hostages. Uh, Winston Churchill said, that there's nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at. And he, he was right. But no one ever shot at me either. And my, my career, even though it was heavily involved in arrests and SWAT operations, my career was typical in that most agents don't fire their guns during their career in the line of duty. Police do it a lot. We do it rarely. But police have a far tougher job than I had. They're out on the street in uniforms, and they're, they're all things to all people. Whereas FBI agents, we ride, we ride around in unmarked cars in our suits. You know, we're federal college boys, and uh, we, we act accordingly, and we're not exposed 
to the day-in and day-out stress and danger that police officers face. I really admire our officers in uniform. Wow. Jack, if you, now, when you did semi-annually, you had to <clears throat> do your shooting trials. Yes. Uh, what did you have to sustain to stay qualified? Um, we had to, I, I'll tell you what the course was like. You had to shoot. Uh, and the numbers changed. It was an 80 or an 85, depending on what kind of course we were shooting. But most agents shot up in the 90s, whereas <laughs> most of my career, I shot in the high 80s. I was, I was good, but I wasn't great. One of the interesting things you do, Joel, in firearms training in the FBI is approximate as close as possible what you face on the street in an arrest. And mm-hmm. here's how we do it. We jog around the firearms range, we get our heart rates up, and we get out of breath. And then we fire when we're out of breath. That's one way to do it. Because you may be running out on the street and have to use your weapon, and you're not going to be real calm. The adrenaline's going to be there, the spike of adrenaline that happens in law enforcement. That's going to be there. You have to take that into account. And when you fire, you've got to fire accurately. And... From, I, when I was hired, we were using six-round Smith & Wesson revolver. When I retired, 30 years later, I carried a six-hour semi-automatic 9mm with 15 rounds. That's the difference in the uh, firearms, the FBI, the evolution of firearms in my 30 years. Mm-hmm. But the firearms training is repetitive. It's it's usually from 25 yards in. Uh, FBI statistics in, in our 100 years show that most FBI shootouts are within seven yards, 21 feet. And that's awfully close. That's not even a, that's not even a first down, you know. And right. we fire at seven yards. We fired 15, we fired 20 and 25. And when I came in the FBI, they taught me, who had never fired a uh, a, a firearm. They taught me to shoot my Smith & Wesson revolver from 60 yards out. And I was putting them in the target. And everybody else was too. I wasn't any better. There were a lot of shooters better than I was. But now, do you amazing. still practice today? I, I don't. You know, Joe, I, I know this may sound unusual, but I never really cared about firearms. I, I still don't hunt. I carried my weapon because it was it was my. It was part of my professional responsibility, not only wow. to myself but to the public and to my fellow agents, that I be well trained and professional in the use of firearms and 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 use restraints. The FBI's firearms policy is: don't fire unless your your life is threatened or someone around you's life is threatened. And when you do fire, Joel, you fire with deadly force. We don't fire warning shot. We don't shoot at cars. When we fire at someone, we fire at that person to kill him. And if, if you use that policy, you don't use it very often. It's a tough mm-hmm. policy. And the FBI enforces it. If you fire, if you fire your gun in the FBI as an agent, you'll spend a lot of time explaining why you fired it. And that's the way it should be. Agents are held accountable for each round they, they fire. You fire for effect, and once on a drug arrest, 
while my partner and I had a guy down, face down on a rural highway, his brother tried to run over us in a pickup truck. And mm-hmm. we avoided oh, yeah, that mess. We weren't run over, but my partner got off a shot trying to get the driver, but his round went through in the radiator of the truck, mm-hmm. and he had to explain why it was a good shoot. That is why he fired. And, of course, it was a good shoot, but he also had to explain why he hit the car instead of the driver. In the FBI, right. we don't shoot tires. We don't shoot at cars. We shoot at people who are trying to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Wow. That's funny. So, uh, wow. Now, you mentioned in your book that Hoover had, uh, or I'm sorry, Hoover loved to reminisce about the days were uh, fighting the gangsters. Yes, he did. He, uh, I guess that, I, I guess even that, from the time you enter, you know, sixty nine, back to yeah. then, that was another whole transference of another era because you know there were uh, history would tell you unless it's told wrong that the FBI had quite a few wars with uh, uh, gangsters. Gangsters, yeah. yeah, we did. You know the what you see in the movies, uh, like this recent Johnny Depp movie. Uh, mm-hmm. about gangsters. Uh, the FBI really uh, came of age in the early and mid-1930s when we had some agents gunned down uh, at a railroad station, the main one in Kansas City. The bullet holes are still in the wall there, by the way. And when that happened, uh, we, we received authority to arm ourselves and, and not simply be interviewers and uh, and rely on local and state police to arrest people. And once we were armed, we were we were armed well, and uh, we ended up using uh, Thompson submachine guns, that reliable weapon that um, the greatest generation carried during World War II. And it's a wonderful weapon, and the FBI used it to uh, go after gangsters to, to out, have more firepower than gangsters. The, notorious people in the 30s and, and in the early 40s. And mm-hmm. the FBI got a lot of great publicity for finding these bank robbers and bringing them, sometimes deceased, uh, back to justice. And J. Edgar Hoover looked on those days as the glory days of the FBI, and they were. We had many successes. And then World War II came, and the Bureau changed to a counterintelligence agency. They were working on protecting the country against spies. And, but Hoover got that in his blood, the gangster days. And if you were to visit him in his office, and any agent could request to see him, and my best friend and partner in the FBI, Leon Sazmore, he sat down with Director Hoover and uh, spoke to him uh, after Sizemore had already been in one field office. And he said Hoover was uh, very gracious, easy to talk to, but that he did... You know, his conversation would wander back to gangsters. He liked to talk about gangsters and communists. <laughs> wow. <after> the red <laughs> scare. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I never did talk to the director Hoover. Never met him. He was an historic figure. I regret that I didn't meet him. I, I wrote him a letter and asked him for a signed uh, autographed photo. And, I was going to say, that's as, clo- that's as close of a relationship that you had with him was getting a signed photo from him. <laughs> I hope he didn't remember seeing me carrying a brown bag. Oh, <laughs> <at the FBI laughs> <laughs> uh, man. So, okay, so then you have the, um, 
So I, I, it, I found it interesting that you were, able, you were able to work in the FBI while Hoover was still running because um, he was an eccentric person. And like I said, he had such great control of that agency. And of course, you can see how it, sp- how it spills out in your dialogue, uh, you know, uh, retrospective among some of the other directors that have come and go. Yes. And um, yeah, it, the subsequent directors were unlike Hoover. Um, they, on the paper, they had the same kind of power and authority, but really, we never felt like they exercised it to the degree that Hoover did. I mean, he was director of the FBI from 1924 to 1972. That is that's a long amazing. time. And that's, you know, it just... is, Joel. And Congress, after Hoover died. Uh, Congress passed a law that said that no director could serve more than 10 years. I don't think Congress had the guts to do it when he was alive, but uh, <laughs> after he died, they did that. And that's Yeah, of that's course. Yeah, there were, cause there were a lot of stories about, you know, uh, well, there were stories anyway. You know, I'll just call them stories that, you know, if you yes. got on his bad side, then he'd open a file on you. Yes. Yeah, he, he was notor- notorious for having files on politicians and uh, powerful people in the country. And, you know, in my in my experience, I never saw any of those files. There's still debate about what happened to them. Uh, there, there's allegations that they were burned and gotten rid of after his death by his longtime secretary or by some higher-ups in the FBI. But, um, I mean, you can pick and choose which story you want to believe. The interesting thing is, we we haven't had a professional agent be named director very often, but it has happened. Uh, right. Clarence Kelly was was head of the Birmingham FBI office, and Richard Nixon appointed him. Clarence Kelly, who was then retired from the FBI, and brought him and back in. Police. Yeah, he was appointed right. director, and Louis Free uh, worked organized crime in New York City, and then became a federal judge when Bill Clinton appointed him. He was. Louis Free director, he was a free with a judge, federal judge. I had right. worked with Free when in the Atlanta child murders case. Uh, yes, one of the directors, uh, the only one who was in SAC was Clarence Kelly, who looked like Dick Tracy. He had the big, big hands and a gravelly voice, but he was a big teddy bear. I got to know him when I worked the FBI's crime resistance project and uh, spent time with him, and he was a delightful guy down-to-earth, kind of a street agent look and feel about him. Easy to easy to work with. But the, the other director who was actually on the street was Louis Free. And I, I did not get to know Louis very well, although I did meet him a number of times. I, I liked Louis Free and enjoyed working with him. Mm-hmm. I have an odd question for you uh, coming out of chat. And I am... Sorry to say, I'm a little too young to know this show, but there was an FBI show on television in the 60s. Yes. Do you know it? Yes. It's, uh, it, it I'm, starred Ethel Zimbalist Jr. Yes. Right. I'm being asked if what your opinion on uh, of the show was. Was it, you know, I mean, did it not to compare, well, I guess, to some of the cases in the FBI? It, it wasn't accurate from this standpoint. Uh, the okay. character played by Ethel Zimbalist Jr. was an inspector. Now, to be an inspector in the FBI, you're working at FBI headquarters and you go out in the field and you check 
the accuracy of their investigations and that they're doing them right. Each FBI field office is regularly inspected. Inspectors don't go out and work cases. And also, for example, in the show, if Zimbalist, the, the character he was playing, if he was in Kansas City, and if he developed information about something that was happening in Miami, he, he went to Miami. And the question arises, well, that's why we have agents in Miami. You, know, you, you don't go there. You get on the phone and you have those agents go out and do the investigation. We use right. each other around the field in that way to reduce the travel and to speed up things. You know, the FBI, there's no agency uh, more well-trained and financed to work a major case in the FBI. I mean, we have mm-hmm. these 57 field offices. We have 13,000 agents spread out around the country, and we use them. And if something happens, if you, get, if you get information in L.A. about something going on in St. Louis, you instantly get it to them now through computers or on the telephone, and you have those agents immediately react to what you're telling them. So from the standpoint of that TV show, which, I watched before I was an agent uh, and really enjoyed it. Then after I became an agent, I, you know, I began to poke holes in it because it, wouldn't, it wasn't exactly true to the way we operate. But that TV station was based on actual FBI files. Okay, so it was and, based on actual files. Yes, and Ephraim Zimbalist was a friend of J. Edgar Hoover, and Hoover uh, gave him honorary FBI credentials. Hmm. Wow, see that? That show lasted quite a while. It was very successful. Nine years, yeah. And there's uh, yes. there's a piece of trivia that uh, people probably didn't know, that he he was friends with uh, director Hoover. Imagine that. Yes, the photographs of the two of them together. Uh, Zimbalist was frequently in uh, Hoover's office on the fifth floor of FBI headquarters. And and since since Hoover was director... Headquarters has moved across the street. He instituted uh, and got the funds for the new building, which we now know as FBI headquarters on Pennsylvania Avenue, but which opened in the mid-'70s but, mm-hmm. uh, after Hoover died. Uh, that, that building, uh, I've been in many times and had meetings in there, but I, I never worked at headquarters. I never wanted a desk job. I wanted to be on the street. I like being a grunt one of the worker bees, and that's where all the action was, that's where the fun was, and I didn't now, want to be behind a desk. Now, speaking of uh, speaking of the street work and the grunt work and the action, uh, I'd like to take you back into your, into your book uh, to a fantastic story from when you were in uh, the Denver office, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. And uh, you and your partner went to, uh, you were looking for somebody, and uh, I'm going to have you take over here in a second. But you were looking for somebody, and if I recall correctly, you stopped by an old workplace, not expecting to find him there, but just for something to do to rouse the manager and question the manager. Yes. And yes. You can take it from there. Yes. My, my partner was Bob Rogers, a former Marine Corps captain and Vietnam vet. He was tough as nails, and he was a great partner. I loved him to death. And uh, we were first office agents together in Denver, our first assignment. It was my case, and we had information that a fugitive had worked at a downtown Denver restaurant, but that he had moved on. Well, we went to the restaurant to talk to the owner to see if he knew where 
the guy went. And Bob and I walked through the front door of the restaurant. It was around noon. It was, it was crowded. And we run smack dab into the fugitive. He's, he's a waiter. And uh, we look at him. He looks at us. And we told him he was under, the, under arrest. We grabbed him. And here's what we did wrong, Joe. We, we were going to brace him against what we thought was a wall and handcuff him the bureau way. And when we threw him against the wall to handcuff him, it was actually a revolving door. And uh, he started running. He just ran, ran away from us. And we chased him, which was delightful. I love chases because I ran track in high school and college. And I figured, there's nobody who can outrun me. <laughs> and there I am in my suit. Bob's in his suit. We're, uh, we're typical agents in our white shirts and ties. And we're chasing this waiter down this busy streets of noontime Denver on a beautiful day. And we chased him a long way, but Bob and I were in better, better condition. And we kept closing on him. And after a while, Joe, he started to look like a guy running in water. His <laughs> legs got real heavy. And I could just feel the smile on my face. You know, I knew I had this guy. And we tackled him finally got him down and he was breathing so hard he was out of breath couldn't even talk we got his hands behind his back and we're handcuffing him and up pulls a denver police unit and a guy gets out and what he has witnessed are two guys in a suit in suits chasing a waiter and a street and he he just about, the, the Denver police officer, he's he got his hand on his gun, and he said something like, what is going on here? And, and we said, we're working. We're FBI. And he said, well, show me something. You know, he wanted credentials. Mm -hmm. And, Joe, this is where my heart sank. I reached into my, for my credentials, and, and they were gone. I had lost them. <laughs> I lost them in the chase. And I was thinking, Hoover is going to remember I'm the guy with the brown bag, and now I'm the guy who's lost my credentials, and he's going to fire me. I'm going to make it through the day. So I said to Bob, Bob, show the police officer your credentials. He did. And I said, Bob, you handle this guy while I go find my credentials. <laughs> and I backtracked all the way to the, re uh, to the restaurant. I did find my credentials, thank goodness. There was no greater offense in Hoover's FBI than to lose your credentials, which had your photograph, Hoover's signature, and the FBI seal. Mm -hmm. You just didn't lose your credentials, and if you did, I mean, you were in big trouble. Right. And that worried me more than anything, but I did, you know, the lesson is don't brace a guy against a revolving door. <laughs> <laughs> Right, but also the story gets even better. This is the because this is the guy who actually did not stay in custody, correct? No, he didn't. He didn't. We uh, Bob and I took him to the United States Marshal's office. They had holding cells there, so we could get him into a, uh, a prison. And he was a, a thief, a jewel thief. He wasn't particularly noted for being armed and dangerous but he was a slippery little character uh he was we took him and gave him to the marshals the marshals searched him 
and they're they're very thorough in their search, but somehow they miss a single dime in this guy's pocket. And when they put him in, when the marshals put him in the holding cell, and Bob and I left. It was time to get a lunch. You know, we were hungry. We we left, and the marshals put the guy in the holding cell. They didn't pay any attention to him for a while. They went about their business. The guy took the dime. He got down on his hands and knees, and he unscrewed the heating duct, the cover on the duct, mm-hmm. and he pulled the thing out of the wall, and he was, he was kind of small, about five, six. He got into the heating duct and started making his way through, through the building, heating ducts, to freedom. <laughs> and he came to the office of the United States Attorney, and the secretary was busy typing away. And he, he put himself in a little ball and kicked out, and he kicked the grate right out of the wall, which startled the stew out of the secretary. And, she, and he climbs out of the wall, and he looks at her, and he said, uh, sorry to bother you, but, you know, we're working on the unit, and, uh, you know, I'm going to go get the rest of my tools, something like that. And uh, he said, goodbye. And she said, well, walks right out of custody nice of, of the U.S. Marshals. <laughs> oh, man. The guy escaped. And you know, I never called him. I never saw him again. I went about wow. my other cases. I tried to catch him, but I never found him. Unbelievable. Just walked right out of the custody of the U.S. Marshals. Man. <laughs> Bob and I, Bob Rogers, my partner, we couldn't believe it. We, we were out in our car that afternoon when he escaped, and we said, how can he escape? We just arrested him. <laughs> but he did. He escaped, and he, he got out of Denver somehow. And Bob and I... We went about our careers. I was transferred to Birmingham, Alabama, where I stayed 29 years. And Bob went to San Diego and then back to the FBI Academy, where he became an, FBI, uh, an instructor in physical fitness. There's three things you do, Joe, in the FBI when you're hired. The training centers around firearms, physical fitness, and classroom training where they teach you, where they really teach you how to behave, as an agent, and mm-hmm. study a lot of things, including constitutional law, and the curriculum is tough. I, I enjoyed it, though. After law school, it, it didn't seem hard. But law school was tough. I, so I, that, loved, I loved my 30 years, and I loved the training. I'd do it again. So now when you got close to the end of, the, of your career, though, um, I, I, I know from, from the book that you had uh, a little run-in with technology, so to speak. Uh, which, one are, which one are you referring to, Joe? Right. Well, I, I guess a, a little bit of all of it. I mean, you know, you had, uh, you know, the, the paper was turned into email and, yeah. uh, you know, everything yeah. was starting to advance. And, it, I, you know, uh, I guess from reading your final <laughs> chapter to it just wasn't your cup of tea anymore. You didn't seem like, uh, you know, it wasn't the way you were doing things for all these years. But yet that was the I way know. that everybody, including the FBI, was eventually taking that road. Yes, they were they were passing me by, and a lot of the older agents. I never really thought of myself as an old or older agent, but indeed I was. And uh, toward the end of the 90s, the Bureau uh, went uh, to computers. We stopped doing things manually. We had paper files, and they were going to electronic files. And I, at that time, unlike now, today, uh, I really wasn't into email and I didn't think agents should be sitting in front of a computer screen and uh, typing their reports. I thought they ought to be out on the street hunting people and developing informants and doing interviews. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of a, 
curmudgeon toward the end of my career. But <laughs> the day the day I retired, they presented me with a thickly uh, bound little uh, volume of around 400 emails, none of which I'd ever read. And uh, <laughs> I was laughing. I, I was thinking, you know, I may have been fired about two years ago and don't even know it. <laughs> but I took those home, and I over the years, it's been 10, going on 11 years since I retired, I have looked at those emails, and none of them were any important. Well, that any important. So uh, just put just push an electronic anything. paper back and forth, huh? Yeah, I, yeah, and you know now, Joe, every agent has a computer, a PC on his desk, which is very impressive because we work cyber crimes now. Plus, an agent in Birmingham can sit at his PC and and talk by computer to an agent in Alaska or mm-hmm. up in New York. I mean, it's just terrific what they're doing. I applaud this change, and I'm I'm with it now. I'm I'm. I have email. I'm on Facebook. I like it. It's well, I'll, cool. I, I, I'll give you something else to blow your mind. Yes. You're on a telephone. The rest of the show is on the computer. Yes. Isn't that amazing? So you're actually yeah, interfacing with a computer right now. Yes. I mean, I mean I, don't get me wrong. I'm for real. We're for real, but <laughs> all of our transmissions are, 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 are through the computer. I, I, I think that's terrific, and... And I love the technology. My children just run circles around me, and they help me a lot. My wife helps me. She's really good on the computer. But I, I type all my manuscripts into a computer, and I send my manuscripts to publishers via computer. I, I'm into it now. But I, mm-hmm. I wasn't then. But I, I recently toured the new FBI office in Birmingham. It's really a terrific place. It's uh, three stories. And... Uh, it was built to conform with post-9-11 security requirements. Right. And the, every agent uh, has a computer, and the firearms vault is really up-to-date, the terrific, uh, up, really modern weapons. The training is terrific. Agents have really tough training now at the academy. Academically, it's rough, rougher than when I came through, I think. And the last part of my career... I was really delightful. My legacy to the organization that I love was to recruit the best men and women I could find. And I, I did that the last five years. I made speeches. I went on the media, dealt with the media, and I went to college campuses to recruit agents into the FBI. I love doing it. And uh, there's so many, if I may say, there's so many fine young agents in the Bureau now because I found them and brought them in. Mm-hmm. And I take great pride in that. And, and, and as well you should. Thank you. So now you've been you've been out uh, 11 years. Um, yes. So what do you do with yourself now? Do you watch any adrenaline pumping television? Uh, mostly I watch my four-year-old granddaughter. I, 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 I keep her. My wife and I keep her. It's delightful. But in addition to doing that, which we do all day uh, during the week, uh, I retired to write, Joel. The, the FBI is a jealous mistress. Uh, agents cannot publish when they are on duty, when they're actually agents. So you have to retire to publish. And I had wanted to be a writer for many, many years. And I retired to, uh, to write. I've been published in uh, various magazines, both short stories and articles about the FBI, but I'm very proud of my, my memoir, 
because it was a labor of love, and mm-hmm. I wanted I wanted to write something that was genuine and that had that had a, a feeling of reality about it. And I have heard from former colleagues and agents who are now on board who have said to me that I got it right, and, and I really I, I'm overjoyed to hear that. I, I, did, I wanted to make the FBI as real as possible, but also the terrific men and women who supported me and protected my life and the life of American citizens, who could continue to do that job and do it well. And I took great pride in being an agent in the FBI. And really, Joel, I, I had never considered the Bureau to my final year in law school. And uh, the best decision I ever made was deciding to enter on duty in the FBI instead of taking an offer I had in the law firm. And I thought when I started that I would get experience and maybe leave to practice law. But once I got my toe in that lake, I just stayed in the water. I loved it. I never wanted to leave. And you know, now, Joel, uh, the retirement mandatory age is 57. And I was pushing that. I was 55. Mm-hmm. when I left, but I, I had 30 years, and I thought, you know, it's time to give it to these young kids who are really terrific, these 20 and 30-year-olds who are now becoming agents, and uh, I left to write, and that's what I've done, and I, I love writing, too. Right, and you did a fantastic job with this book, and you, um, actually, the stories in it, I mean, if for those listening, the best reason to go get this book, I mean, is uh, to find out that Jack was a criminal before he started. And I'm going to leave that like that. I don't, Jack, I don't want you to say anything about that. Okay. <laughs> because, the, you know, to, to start the book out that way, you know, it really draws you in. The book is well written. It's got a lot of great stuff in there. It is very humorous. It is a very easy read because it flows. And you, you just don't want to put it down. That's the God's honest truth. This is, it's a, that's what they call page turner through and through. Thank you, Joe. And I want to say, uh, I, I don't want to just thank, uh, you know, Don, your producer, your producer, oh my, your publisher, yes. for, get, for reaching out, getting in touch, sending the book, which is awesome in itself. But most importantly, Jack, I want to thank you, uh, I know from all of us, for your 30 years of service to our country in thank the you. FBI and keeping us exactly. safe. Thank you, thank you, Joe. That, that's very heartwarming for me to hear. I deeply appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank you, especially for taking some time out to spend with us on the show. Unfortunately, I, uh, it, it, it had, every good thing has to end, and so, and so does this show tonight. But uh, <laughs> the book is marvelous. Uh, I would hope one day that we can meet and I can get you to sign it for me because uh, I, you know uh, we had to move fast getting the book to us. So I guess uh, we can get a sign. I'd love to get a sign. Love to shake your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be on your show and to meet you. Thank you so much.